welcome to Import This, a podcast for humans. This is episode number, I have no idea, I think number 13 or 14. And today we are joined with our wonderful guest, Aaron X. O'Connell, who is a great friend of mine. Uh, we met in college at George Mason University and have been friends for the last decade, according to Facebook. And uh, she is a Pythonista, uh, as well as many other things, a hardware hacker. Uh, and when we met, uh, your name was not Aaron, it was Mike. Isn't that right? Yep, that is uh, accurate there, Ken. Yes, so Aaron is trans and is a trans member of the development community, so I thought that she would make a great guest for not only her involvement in PipEnv, my latest project, uh, but, you know, just to share her general experience with that and the community. So... Do you want to uh, do you want to start with what you've been doing with PipEnv lately? Um, sure, I could talk about PipEnv. Um, so I started using the project back when you first developed it. Um, you know, I was an early adopter, I guess you could say. Well, before we get into it, we should probably tell people what PipEnv is. I'll let you take that one. All right. So PipEnv is a new tool that I created. It's not new. It's about six to eight months old now. Uh, and it's starting to get some traction. Um, the PyPA, which is the Python Packaging Authority, is officially uh, about to recommend it as the recommended packaging tool instead of PIP. Uh, so effectively what it does is it gives you a better workflow for dealing with Python dependencies. Instead of deal- using requirements files, you use this new thing called a PIP file. And it allows you to specify different groups of packages like development and a default group, uh, as well as it has a lock file. So it tries to take the best parts of Cargo and NPM and uh, Um, all those... Like Yarn. Yeah, Yarn and and all those packaging tools and bring them over into the Python world. And that's what PipEnv is. Um, So check it out if you haven't. It's pretty cool. Uh, It's uh, relatively stable. And uh, <laughs> I, I pushed, like, eight releases yesterday. Uh, yeah, you know, just casually. Was, I like You made a comment, too, on, on GitHub to Nate about how you were like, let's do fewer releases since now we can auto-update. And then you just released, like, you know, eight releases in a day. Yeah, well, that was because, like, I added an auto-updater feature, so you can do pipm-update, and it'll update itself. So now we don't have to worry about that as much. Which is nice, but anyway, so uh, Aaron's been helping out with PipEnv and, and Windows support in particular, which has been wonderful because uh, PipEnv fully supports Windows, and uh, that's mm-hmm. in part thanks now to uh, your work. I did a tremendous amount of work to add Windows support originally. <laughs> yeah, but whatever. But uh, over time, that atrophied. Uh, the, the CI stopped working and, and stuff like that, and it got unmaintained. But Aaron came in and uh, and fixed everything up, which is great. Yeah. Um, that was uh, quite an experience, especially last night searching for that bug in the Windows test was uh, frustrating. Um, as, you know, everything you want Windows to do it just doesn't do exactly the same. It appeared like, to me as though it's, Mock behaves differently on Windows than it does on POSIX. Is that accurate? Uh, I believe it does, yeah. I'm not too familiar with Mock, as I've you know, um, just recently started doing a lot of unit testing stuff in Python. Um, but it, Mock did not like the directory structure that it was operating in last night, because one of the tests failed, and it didn't clean up its directory. 
and then mock in those subdirectories just wasn't having it. And as soon as I fixed that one test and it passed and it was able to clean itself up, uh, mock ran fine. So don't know exactly what the issue was there, but um, so what something Windows related. What would you say it is that you do? What I do for like work? Yeah. Um, so I work at Four Winds Interactive, um, right now. We are a digital signage company. Um, uh, currently I do kind of back-end development for them, uh, you know, writing anything from, uh, custom integrations, uh, to doing some hardware hacking for them. Um, and occasionally I do use the product we create to, you know, create or manage our signs and stuff for certain clients. And and for um, people who are listening, so, digital signage is like when you go to an airport and you see like those uh, FIP systems, which tell you when all the flights are arriving and leaving, those are powered by the software, basically. Yes, mm-hmm, exactly. Um, and then like I would be writing the integration of how do we get the data of the flight information data out of the airline system and then into a readable format like, you know, JSON or uh, XML if we have to, but, um, you know, so that way our software can consume it and then display it in a human readable way. And you have to use Windows a lot for that because most of the clients are running on Windows servers, right? Yeah, so a lot of the client infrastructure is dominated with Windows servers, and so... Uh, over the years, I well, I used to work at an airport and manage a bunch of old Windows servers and SQL servers and stuff. Um, and through that, kind of learned you know a lot about Windows networking and Windows, uh, just how you know like AD works and how you know you can subnet everything like really crazily if you have like a Windows uh, server running and stuff. So um, in our software, though, it's uh, C- we use C sharp. Um, and so while C-Sharp did recently become multi-platform, uh, we currently uh, are supporting uh, using like the uh, .NET 4.6.2, so not .NET Core yet, although we are looking to make the, uh, make the move to make our software a little more cross-platform. Is .NET Core is something you target for cross-platform capabilities, or does it give you any other benefits? Um, it gives you some benefits in that it seems a lot more... Uh, it's a lot easier to write in than say like ASP.NET dot or you know ASP.NET five or something like that. Um, you know they introduced the Kestrel server, which is like basically a you know a built-in web server that's really easy to use. You don't have to use IIS or you oh. know, IIS Express or anything like that. Um, so they completely changed their web stack and stuff. Like I ported HTTP uh, bin. Uh, your service that you wrote for testing stuff, and I ported it to C Sharp. That's awesome. And it was very much, very Pythonic. You know, I would just have like essentially what are decorators, you know, above each class, and just say, you know, this one's a get method at this endpoint, and it accepts these, you know, uh, things. And I was able to replicate like twenty nine of your endpoints, or forty of them, I think, or something like that. I don't know. That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of people don't know this about me, but my first tech gig was this. With C sharp development, I was a SharePoint developer for three months. I remember that. Yeah, it was good times. I I enjoyed C sharp when I was writing it. Uh, I was a hardcore Pythonista at the time, but C sharp was a pleasurable language to use, and I've always had a lot of respect for it. When I was doing it, it was at three five. Uh, it was right before four zero came out, which is when it got all the cool new features like uh, yeah, async await mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. You could also do dynamic variables and stuff. 
it had but they had the, more of, the they had VAR. more of like a DLR stuff. So it, they had VAR at the time, but that was it. Like there was you can a, still use like you can still use VAR, but it's generally frowned upon unless you are. It's very very implicit what you're creating. Like if you're if it's like and it's it, just a string, then you don't have to name it string. But if it's like a convoluted class or something, you should probably type it. And if I remember correctly, VAR was like. It was like duct typing in Python. It was like this is an explicit variable that can contain anything, right? Um, no. If you so, if you mark the variable dynamic, yes, it could. Um, but var was essentially just a short key. It, like if if you if it was equal to a string, so var s equals some string. Um, just var essentially replaced the word string, and it just made it so you didn't have to write it. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it was kind of an implicit. Duck typing type of situation, but um, you know, my experience I, was relatively limited. I was writing migration scripts, so people run websites. It turns out, it turns out, out of like Excel and out of Access and stuff like that. Gosh, you wouldn't believe some of the data sources I've had to integrate to and, or from. And they want to migrate. There are all these nonprofits that do this, and they want to migrate to something more production worthy. So they want to migrate to SharePoint. Uh, <laughs> so so we write migration scripts that would import from Access or or Excel or something like that into SharePoint. And at the time, I got away with using Iron Python most of the time, which was nice. Oh man, I love Iron Python. Iron Python's fantastic. Michael Ford have would the... have been proud because I was able to use all the the SharePoint DLLs with it, and it was great. And it made it so much easier than writing C Sharp. <laughs> Is this- I have Iron Python. Uh... What? Uh-oh. Can you not hear me? Call? Dropped audio? Okay. I can still hear you. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. I, the, your video stopped. Now I can hear you again. Okay. Yeah, your video stopped. Okay. Your video resumed. I will... I'll edit this part out. Okay. Um, so you were doing SharePoint scripts. Yep, it was it was lots of fun. Uh, but then I got an offer to work at an op- a, a quote unquote open source place where you know they were writing Java and PHP and Python and and you know open source technologies. So I took that opportunity uh, to to do that. I did that for like nine months. So. I remember you had a lot of different job changes when, yeah, uh, during that time. I iterated you very quickly. Kept, you did. You really did. Um, so speaking of a uh, C sharp for a sec, I, I want to ask you a question. Um, so Python three, what five? I think it was brought typing and stuff, so you can actually he like type type hinting. Type hinting, yes. yes. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you want to? Do you think it's a good idea? You think it takes away from what makes Python Python? I, when I first heard about it, thought that it was a terrible idea, um, and I personally don't write code that you would utilize it very much. Uh, however, uh, I recently saw a project called API Star um, by Tom Christie, or that's not how you say his name. Tom, uh, he just had a thing on Twitter. What's his name? Is it Tom Christie? I do not. It's the, it's the Django Rest framework guy, 
And he, uh, it is Tom Christie. I said it properly. Okay. He, <laughs> he, uh, he's great. And he, um, he's using type annotations to kind of like Flask uses routes. So you can say, like, this is a function. It's going to receive a response. And it's going to do something on the response. So I thought that was pretty cool. And that's the first time I've ever seen them and, like, nodded my head in agreement. So um, I think that as long as they are used sparingly, I think that they will enhance the Python ecosystem. I, I'm not all gung-ho about them like Guido is. Like, Guido works at Dropbox, and I love Guido. He's great. Uh, <laughs> and he, him and all of the, all the Dropbox guys are all about type hinting, and that's, like, their job. That's what they do. So um, that's his project. So... And Guido, it knows what he's doing. He designed Python, right? Like he's responsible for the design. So I trust. EDFL. I trust his judgment um, around this. So that's my opinion. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've heard a lot of di- like dissent or differing opinions on the subject, and like coming from C sharp, I'm like so used to typing stuff, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool, add for Python. But some diehard Pythonistas are like, you know, no. You know, Python's variable, it's dynamic, it's, you know, all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, but, you know. There are certainly some... times when you want types to be enforced. And yeah. that's that's what this is for. Uh, most of the code that I write is both for Python 2 and 3 at the same time. So I can't really use type hinting at the moment. You, there's two ways to do it. You can do it inline in Python syntax in Python 3. Yeah, or, or you can use uh, this annotation commented style that supports in Python two. In Python two, and then you have to use a library to enforce it. Um, yeah, com- it's like typing or something like that. Backport typing, or I don't know. I, the project name is MyPy, and um, I haven't looked into that at all because I have no interest. Um, but it's possible that requests will gain type hinting at some point. But if we do, I want it to use the official three syntax. I don't want to use the commented out kind it just i prefer i don't prefer that so yeah it's a little messy um i mean i know it's in the pep specification but it still looks messy so let's talk about being trans that's uh must be an interesting experience (laughs) wow great segue (laughs) love it um uh yeah i mean it's an experience especially being in the tech world um you know i it definitely kept me back a little because, it, you know, most of my field, most of the field that we work in is, um, you know, cis white male. Um, you know, uh, cis would be, uh, you know, kind of like the opposite of trans. Well, it literally is in Latin. But um, so transgender, you know, uh, if you're cisgender, your gender identity matches your biological sex. Um and they're in agreement with each other, whereas transgender, your gender identity is generally different than, you know, your bi- uh, the biological sex. Um, so, you know, m- being around mostly men in this field made me not want to come out and not want to transition because I was just afraid, essentially, that, you know, it would either ruin my career or I would get harassed or, you know... Um, it's funny you feel that way anything. because I... Personally, as a cis white male, feel like the Python community is probably one of the most welcoming communities when it comes to stuff like that. Yeah, and I have found that, definitely. Um, You know, there are a lot of uh, 
when I started doing looking into it and really trying to figure stuff out, um, I did realize there were a lot of uh, just gender queer uh, or you know under the trans umbrella um, somehow uh, you know a lot of people in tech and then a lot of people specifically in Python um, and. Uh, I'm, trying, I'm looking up right now. There is a, uh, um, a open source hardware and software project um, called uh, Fade Candy, and it's um, a little tiny board that is used um, to control uh, uh, NeoPixel lighting. So NeoPixel uh, lighting. Um, uh, they're just little lights that you can buy that obey a certain serial standard for sending uh, color data and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I've been using it for a while, and I didn't realize that the creator of the actual board and the uh, firmware for it uh, was a trans woman. And um, uh, Micah Sands, I believe her name is. Um, and uh, that really kind of inspired me to you know, that this could happen. Like, you know, um, she was, you know, making it, she had this really awesome product that I had used all, all this time. And, and so that kind of gave me the inspiration. Then when I did start interacting with the Python community again, and with, um, just, you know, in that I found that, yeah, uh, tech is actually a pretty accepting place. Um, and even in the trans communities, uh, you'll find a lot more tech people actually than, uh, a lot more tech people than you'd expect, or a lot more trans people than you'd expect in the tech world. So that's wonderful. So you found, have you found it to be an overall positive experience uh, being involved in tech? Has that supported your transition? Yeah, um, definitely. And you know, I, when I was living in Virginia, I think there were always going to be challenges to, um, you know, being trans just in Virginia, not specifically in tech, but just like in Virginia. Um, so moving out here to Colorado, it's definitely been like a great experience. You know, um, at work, I came out, I worked with my boss, um, Aaron Bach. He was uh, amazing. And, uh, you know, he did everything he could for me and advocating for me. HR really helped me out. And, uh, when I did come out to people at my company, it was pretty much just like nothing had changed. You know, I was still just a developer which is what I wanted them to see me as. You know, I didn't want them to be like, oh, well, now you're identifying as a woman, so obviously you can't do any development or something. I do find it and interesting it, how geography seems to really play an important part here because I, I remember, I think that moving to Denver, when, that was pro- your motivating factor was the fact that they have a more accepting community there than, say, in Virginia, right? Yeah, um, the, the, federal, the law here in, for the state law um, and city of Denver, uh, gender identity and sexual identity are both protected classes under the Civil Rights Act here. Um, and so they are not in Virginia. So in Virginia, you could get fired for just being gay, which, you know, it doesn't happen super often. Um, but a lot of times, well, in employer, Virginia, they can, it's an at will employment state, so they can fire yeah, you for no reason. That's, that is also true. Um, is, is Denver also an at-will employment city? or? Um, yeah, but again, or, it is an at-will employment, but not with uh, protected classes with, and things like that, obviously. Okay, there's stipulation. Yeah, because I have that. Yeah. I have bipolar disorder, so there's um, restrictions around firing me, I guess, because 
if if it's related to my illness. If, does that make sense? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it turns out that bipolar is a federal disability, which I didn't know until recently. And it falls uh, under like the ADA Act. The you know you can't fire someone who has a dis you know it's, has a a disability because of their disability. Um, which kind of sucks for the employer because I definitely know that bipolar can be responsible for some very severe lack of work ethic. <laughs> so, uh, luckily, mine usually manifests the opposite, so I don't really have a problem there. Um, yeah, but it depends on what mood I'm in. So, yeah, I can I can see where that might uh, play an effect. But I mean, at that point, if you're not getting a lot of work done, um, you know, I'm sure that there are other reasons that they can you know uh, at the time you know yeah but i think um, i i do i'm pretty sure that people couldn't abuse that system like if they got fired for slacking off they could be like well i have bipolar yeah and then they could sue and probably win or settle yeah yeah i mean so it's I also think the tech community is a lot better than this than regular jobs. You know, like I used to work at Walmart and that was terrible. Like if I was dealing with the stuff I'm dealing with now, like the eating disorder or coming out and being trans and transitioning and stuff, they would not like, they, they would pretty much fire you as fast as they could. <laughs> they would not, they would not, they would find any reason possible. Like, Oh, you swiped in late four times. And it was like, what, in the last week? And they were like, oh, no, in your whole career, so we're firing you. And it's just like, oh, okay. Um, but in tech, you know, I've had many bouts of struggle with mental illness and depression and anxiety, um, you know, panic attacks, things like that, especially around the transition. And then currently I've been dealing with an eating disorder and been out of work uh, on treatment for that. And um, yes, thank God for FMLA, that has saved my life as well. Um, but my job is very understanding. You know, they, they, their first concern is they want me to get better. You know, they don't want me to get sicker, um, which I feel like the tech community, it's just kind of, they have a better understanding of, you know, mental illness and like, yeah, invisible illnesses in general. Um, you know, they understand that if you say I'm need to take a sick day because of my depression, that you're not just, doing nothing all day like you're literally it's like it's actually a sick day for you yeah we should encourage um, our listeners to to take mental health days if they need them because if with their employer because it's uh it's an important thing to do and it sets a good standard uh something that uh, that uh i've seen people talk about on twitter and stuff is like sending an email to your team and like explicitly saying that they're taking a mental health day not just taking a sick day um and that that kind of sets a precedent for for that, and that's helpful. Uh, I know when I had my first major manic episode and I was hospitalized for two weeks, um, my company was was very supportive, which was great. They uh, they sent a fruit basket and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I and I w- went on uh, I guess it's temporary disability or something, mm-hmm. whatever they call that, uh, where they I got like sixty percent pay during that time. That's what I do get right now is because I'm doing disability insurance uh, while I'm on FMLA yeah. and everything. Yeah, so my job that's a, me up a, with all that a stuff. benefit that your job provides you that a lot of people don't have. That is, yeah, it is a benefit. And that's another nice thing about working in tech is that, you know, there are those um, benefits and that they're totally available. You know, the company want, like, 
it does seem like the you know more tech companies put their employee first than you know other industries. That's the, the other tragedy I saw when I was in the the hospital was the uh, well most of the people who were in the mental health clinic at the hospital were there for suicide. Like they told their doctor they were thinking about killing themselves, so they got checked in, and um, that's the majority of the cases. But then there was a few crazy people like me. Uh, there was like usually one other person like me who was just like nuts, basically. Uh, and, and yeah, but yeah. usually in a in a in like more violent way or something like that. Um, mine was just like delusional and. Uh, but I, I was sitting there and I'm talking and a, a, a big handful of them are, are homeless. Like, uh, like there was always like two or three, cause I've been in there twice. Uh, there's always like two or three people who are in there who like, when they leave, they're not going to go back home they, or to their families. They're going to go back out on the street and you talk to them and this like going into that place is a total worst case scenario for them because they have no insurance. It uh, is, it, yeah. it costs like $2,500 a day. Uh, mm-hmm. it's like going to print. It's worse than going to jail, basically, because going to jail they stare at you like fifty bucks a day and they feed you, you know. And uh, yeah, and so it's uh, it's it's really interesting, and I'm I'm very thankful that um, you know, I have good insurance, and it still costs me an arm and a leg, of course, but it I was able to to pay it, so um. I, I I don't know what I'm where I'm going with this. I guess I'm. It's just you know I think about that place all the time because I'm sitting here in my house and I live in this tiny town of thirty thousand people and the surrounding area is like five hundred thousand people and I know that there's every day there's twenty to thirty people sitting in that room that are always dealing with that problem and it's crazy to me that that's the world we live in but it's good that that help is available. And um, yeah, and I think that talking about it and redu- helps reduce the stigma. So that's why I wanted to do this episode. I think that reducing the stigma is one way to contribute. That's why I wrote my blog post on my episode and uh, and kind of came out in that way uh, in a much different way than you came out, obviously. But it, just a time. <laughs> but in a way, it was very similar as well, right? Like announcing to the world that I have this debilitating mental disorder. And that I'm crazy sometimes is is uh, it was terrifying, right? Yeah, I mean, anytime you kind of come out about a personal struggle, it's always terrifying because you don't you're just afraid of that judgment. You don't want to be judged negatively, and you don't want people to see you any differently um, than they saw you before. And yet, once they kind of know that about you, it's you know it, it does change some people's perception, but. Yeah, it's scary to release like something that personal, and I think it's good though. You're right; talking about this helps the stigma, but you know, go away. Um, talking about trans people in tech helps the stigma go away. That you know, that doesn't doesn't that they're weird or you know we're freaks or whatever like that. Or talking about depression and anxiety as real things and things that you know we all struggle with and. It's, uh, you know, it sounds to me like we're both in agreement that coming out about various things, like for me bipolar and for you being trans, had a net positive experience 
Yeah, I would say yes. So if um, anyone is listening and they are on the fence about should they publicly speak about something that is like that, then we want to encourage you to maybe do it if you think that it because it, it worked out well for both of us. Yeah, and you know, it doesn't even have to be super public. Coming out and even telling your doctor or your therapist that or admitting that you need to see a therapist and stuff that I mean there's a stigma when someone says they're going to see a psychiatrist or a or a therapist you know they're like what's wrong with you and it's like well you know don't why don't you don't ask that question if I was going to the cardiologist you wouldn't be like oh what's wrong with you it's like <laughs> my fucking heart my, my heart you know what what can I say um but even just you know that's what I find the biggest benefit from coming out is that I can just be very open about like oh, I'm going to see my psychiatrist and like no one no one cares about why or have any questions. They're like, they know. Yeah. You know? They just, they, yeah, they know. And so that's, that's what I like about it. Yeah. It's, I mean, having lived a secretive life, I mean, I knew I was trans from a pretty young age and just tried to, tried to suppress it for a long, long time. And all that did was help get me into and help build other problems, like get me into an eating disorder and, uh, you know, talk, you know, develop just severe, severe depression. And, um, you know, once I finally came out, that stress that was there, um, yeah, I lost, you know, some friends and, uh, you know, uh, Friend, had, you know, well, probably friends that weren't worth keeping anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't want to be friends with bigots. So, you know, it's <laughs> better, it's better for that, uh, you know, um, but it's, it was very freeing, you know, and not all trans people choose to be public about it, which is completely their right. Um, you know, it, some people live in certain areas where it might not just be okay to do that. Like I said, I moved because I, you, I didn't feel could, comfortable where I was. You could live somewhere where it's illegal. Yeah, I mean, in Alabama and stuff where my sister lives, uh, it's, I you know, still can't use uh, female restrooms down there because it's against the state law. And, uh, you know, that's disheartening but um you know so you know what i what i have an opinion i'd like to share Uh oh okay when there is a single-use bathroom why have a gender on it it doesn't make any sense i don't like whose idea was that it's like when i think about it i think i actually think in my mind that this must be like the colored and the white drinking fountains we used to have you know like that's what we're living in today like with the single-use bathrooms that are separated (laughs) so you're comparing the plight of uh segregation from black people and white people to well it's just having a single-use bathroom that's gendered i'm not i just want to i just want to understand or that people are suffering because of this but i'm like (laughs) <laughs> if the theme, if there's a women's room and it's a single use room and it's available and the men's room is unavailable, I go into the female room. Like, yeah, no. See, a lot, a lot of things, you know. The, I'm like, who the, is this affecting? Nobody. Like, no one's in there. It's a one person bathroom. The argument, you know, <laughs> is is that like, you know, we want to like sneak into bathrooms and you know, uh, take pictures or you know, prey on people and stuff like that. And it's like, no, we just fucking gotta pee. Like, just like majority of pretty much everyone always except for you know kim jong-un we all have to take a shit and pee you know like that's something we have to do and you know i'm not going into the bathroom for really any other reason i find public bathrooms just as uncomfortable as everyone else 
Um, I don't think there's any person that's like super comfortable that says, "Yeah, I'll just go into the you know public." I'm super comfortable in public bathrooms. It's you know, no, it's you know my favorite bathrooms experience. are the ones in stadiums. Those are great. Stadium bathrooms, the where the, uh, the the trench, the troughs, <laughs> the trough. Yeah, God, it's wonderful, God. wonderful experience. Sometimes they put a m- like, mirror at the end too. It's just it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> just so you can. You can see everything, you know. Um, and there's there's women's rooms yeah. where they have no doors, right? I mean, sometimes, but I've never been into a women's room that didn't have doors. And, like, you know, going like, in like there... A, like, I mean, a, like, if you're at a crappy dive bar or something. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. But don't have that. Yeah. I mean, really, if there's stalls in the bathroom, then I don't care what gender's in there at the time with me using it. We're both just trying to fucking go to the bathroom. That's, that's all we're doing. So. Just trying to get this over with. Yep, trying to get it over with. Not trying to make this any harder than it has to be. So. All right, so what topic can we segue into from that? Okay, that's a good one. Um, let's, uh, I mean, do you want to go back to talking about mental health or anything like that? I don't know. I think we covered our bases pretty well there. Uh, yeah. People know that I went crazy. People know cool. that uh, you're trans. Cool, uh, yeah. That's, I got an eating disorder. And an got eating that disorder. Checked off. Is there any other, uh, I have ADHD. Uh, or ADD, uh, according to my doctor, ADD. Yeah, I take lots of stimulants. Uh, <laughs> what? Drink some, yeah, I can I can attest you do uh, have a lot of caffeine or uh, you know stuff in you. Yeah, all all prescribed, and um, that's changed my life dramatically. That's always good. Um, oh, I got Ehlers Danlos syndrome. That's right, you do. You have like a really fucked up body. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Yeah, yeah. No, I do. You, you can like do the the jump rope with your arm thing. I, I can if I want to dislocate my shoulders, which I also can, but it is rather painful. So I generally refrain from doing the whole uh, arms jump rope thing. I think I'm getting arthritis in my knees. Ah, uh, you're. Well, you, <clears throat> excuse me. That was that oh was all God. balls. I'm gonna have that to. Was, that was all balls. That was blue guarana balls, you know, right here. For the record, balls is a type of drink that they sell in yes. Colorado. Uh, they sell it at pretty much any micro center. Yes, any micro center, which I unfortunately don't have where I live. You Well, there's one in Fairfax. Yeah, it's like an hour and a half drive. That's true. Yeah. Uh. Micro Center is a fantastic, like, the ultimate computer store, basically. It's like Best Buy for geeks. I just built my new PC there, and that's actually how I've been doing the PipBenv development stuff, is on my new PC. Uh, I built my, I bought my PC from Best Buy, because I'm lazy. Ken. They had a gaming PC in the corner, and and I'm like, will this hold my card? And they were like, yeah, it should. And they were wrong, but it does work, so I have it. Do you want to talk about uh, coins at all? Coins? Sure, let's talk about coins. I'm into coins right now. <laughs> yeah, I know you are. I, uh, I've i stopped mining because it's really just not worth it. Oh, I like it. Um, I have like $100 of Bitcoin now. I, I I have like 10 but at the same time it makes all my... it like I have to leave my computer running like all the time, and I'm only recouping like... It turns out like it's only 40%. Because of the energy costs? Yeah, the energy cost of... You know, I, running, and all, it just makes everything so so hot. Like my graphics card gets up to like eighty-seven degrees C. Yeah, you gotta keep uh, AC running in the room. 
you know, we don't have AC in my house. Oh, yeah, that w- I wouldn't mind then. Yeah, so... But, I mean, I'm looking into getting a water cool loop set up, so perhaps I'll revisit the idea then. But also, I don't have two cards like you got. I have a friend, uh, Rich Jones, who is the creator of Zappa, the serverless deployment framework for Python that allows you to deploy, like, a Flask or Django app to Lambda. And his theory... Oh, that's cool. ...is that Bitcoin is valuable because heroin is valuable. So you could buy heroin with Bitcoin? You can buy drugs with Bitcoin, and that's... Well, I mean, I, yeah, you can buy anything with Bitcoin. And it, well, his theory is that people really like heroin, and that's the only reason that, it, that Bitcoin has any actual value. Huh. It's an interesting theory. I mean... Yeah, I guess. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> um, so by mining, I'm actually increasing the cost of of heroin and helping contribute in a positive way towards the problem if he is correct. That's one way to look at it, I suppose. Yes. You also not have a lot of money to buy heroin. I'm not going to do that. Oh, Ken. Not adventurous at all. We're on a podcast. We do not talk about (laughs) illicit drug use on this podcast. And for the record, I am very straight edge. I don't use any drugs anymore. So, not that I would ever okay. have touched heroin ever, but I mean, I don't, with all my lung collapses and shit, I, I've had. You probably have you had uh, you've had like real pain medication before, right? Yeah, when I was. That's another thing I don't like about Virginia is that they just hand out opiates like candy. Yeah, is that like a, any doctor? That's a Virginia problem. No, it's a South problem. Like it's really South. I mean, in the Midwest and South, yeah. Like, I could pretty much, because of my diagnosis with Ehlers-Danlison, I could go to, like, any doctor and just get opiates. And that, um, that was a problem for you at one point, right? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, they're very addictive. They're, they're not stuff to be messed with at all. Um, and, you know, it sucks for people who start... And it's, that's the biggest gateway. People, you know, like, say, oh, marijuana's a gateway drug into harder stuff. And it's like, no, prescription drugs are a gateway because... Most people can't don't have easy access to them, so they end up using well, heroin and stuff like that. Well, and the prescription drugs are the hard stuff. That's the thing, right? Well, yeah, um, you know, you get to like stuff with uh, oxycotton, uh, dilaudid. Um, you know, like dilaudid is like three times stronger than morphine, and like two strongs, two times stronger than like heroin. There's, and, isn't there stuff out there that's like a hundred times stronger than morphine? Oh uh, yeah, like fentanyl. And yeah, stuff. that's what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Fentanyl is really dangerous. It they have a problem with a... that going around Winchester right now. Yeah, you can get it in patch form. Chronic pain patients can get it in patch form. But, I mean, of course, just like any illicit substance, people can figure out how to extract it from that and my, you know, use it. My town is tiny, doses. but it has a big drug problem. Because we, we're at the ma- intersection of, like, five or six major highways. So all the drugs... Yeah, Winchester all the, is, actually. All the drugs flow through my oh. town. And, uh, like, not... There's, like, neighborhoods where they flow through. They don't flow through where I live, but they, they flow through the city. And they, uh... Fe- fentanyl has been in the papers, I think, um, as, as something that's been going around. That and... But heroin overdoses. We've had, like, six in the last couple months, you know? Yeah. It's a big problem. Because yeah. it keeps getting higher quality, and people take the same amount. And then they, um... They die. So it's... Yeah. It's very tragic. And now, yeah. and now my my lawyer 
is uh, a delegate for the state of Virginia, and he's trying to get a law passed, or it did get passed, one of the two, where if you're a dealer and you um, sold, say, heroin to somebody and it killed someone, you get a manslaughter charge. Hmm. So they're getting really serious about it here. Yeah. I mean, they need to be, honestly. it's Virginia and the South have lax rules and laws against that. And it's just, it's... Virginia it's, has lax laws about nothing. <laughs> well, true. But they have a lot of problems. I mean, they yeah, do. you can get charged them. like... You can get charged like $2,000 for not using your blinker at a turn or some shit like that. I don't know. It's all sort of messed up. Yeah, I, I enjoy living in Virginia. It's nice. The The laws are not my favorite, but they're... Uh, I have a feeling that things will get better, so... Wow, we got on a really weird tangent. Yeah, it's all good. Wanted to, let's get back to Python for our listeners. Okay, Python. So, so pipenv is great. Everyone should use pipenv. Uh, it's the official recommendation from the PyPA, which is the Python Packaging Authority. And little known fact, there's also a Python Authority Authority, which I'm a member of, which is the authority that regulates all of the authorities. It's a meta that's the authority. P- that's the PSF, right? Oh, I am a member of the PSF. No, there is a Python Authority Authority on GitHub. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, it's a joke. It's not real, but it's oh, okay. It's me, Glyph, and uh, Donald Stuffed, and a few other people, and we uh, we decide who gets to be an authority. Amazing. Yes, it's great. It's the Authority Authority. I don't know how I got looped in on that, but I'm not asking any questions. <laughs> That's because you're the authority of all things Python, Ken. Why? Th- why? Thank you. Through your meteoric rise, I mean, all the way from tablib to requests, uh, and then to pipenv, and all your other popular projects that you got going on. Little known fact: I wrote all of the drugs for te- for uh, the documentation for requests. I was mildly drunk when I wrote them, um, and I was probably manic when I wrote requests. Uh, probably meaning definitely. Uh, is all, all of my projects like pipenv and things like that? If if you ever see me like pumping out a lot of code, it's because I'm hypomanic. Uh, I have to focus that energy on something productive, so I get really excited about some new idea, and then I like six hours later, I'm like, here's this amazing thing that I made that like yeah, and, and then I try, I try to comprehend it later, and I'm like, what? How did I write this? This is so good, and it's so. You did that with the pipm code base too. You were like, I did, I did. You were like, oh, let's work on it and stuff, and I'm like, oh, I can't, I'm, you know, I'm I'm in treatment right now or something. I can work on it when I get home, and uh, you're like, oh, okay, that'll be great. I'll need your help, and then you're like, already finished doing all of this and i'm like wow okay well there's nothing left for me to do i guess uh and then like going through your no hobbies i have lots of hobbies but like what are you you talking about you look at all that music stuff in the back what going on i i get i'm modal with my hobbies so like i'm into photography sometimes i'm into music sometimes i'm into code sometimes and when i'm into code i have to code and i have to find things to code so i consume all the code yeah, no, I, it was really funny because I was reading through your, all the changes that you made yesterday and looking at all the diffs and stuff, and I was just like... There was a lot. There was a lot, yeah. <laughs> and at one point, like, 
because hashes were default and you wrote them to not be default, now they're the default again. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it, you were like, hack for not hashes, and it was like, not not hashes, and I was just like, oh god, really? <laughs> you're, negating the, you're negating the input the user gives to, in order to, you know, avoid a legacy behavior and stuff. I know exactly you know, what you're talking about. Yeah, I read that, and I was just like, oh, Ken, oh, Ken, you were, uh, you know, I can definitely tell when you're a little hypomanic, because, like I said, you you do get into that really focused code, like, kind of mode, and pump out a bunch of code real fast, and then it's kind of like... That doesn't attest to the quality. The quality is still... No, I didn't say the quality was bad. The quality is good, so everyone should use pipenv, it's fantastic. I know, it is great software, I'm like... That, that little hack is actually very appropriate, I think, for what it's being used for. It was just really funny that I was like, that would be totally a Ken, like, thing to do. Um, well, I don't want to, like, rewrite the whole thing. I can just put a knot in there and then... I know, no, it's genius solution, really. I mean, but it's just really, <laughs> it was not, just a really no, funny solution. If, if not, not hashes. <laughs> yeah, if not, not hashes, yeah. yeah. Makes perfect sense. And then I um, I have d- things that I have flags that disable features that are always set to true now uh, that you can't disable anymore. So the, there's there's feature flags that are baked in throughout the code base that are just always on. You can't turn them off. So like you can't disable uh, hashes at the moment because they work perfectly. Uh, that's true. That's you found the or you uh, you found the way to make them faster. How did you end up doing the hashing? Pipm lock for people who have used pipm that was the uh slowest part for them and you've greatly improved that yes uh, i am now using the pip tools dependency resolver ah so i tell i go i i go to pip tools and i'm like here's all my dependencies tell me what this resolves to because pip is unable to do this on its own um before what we were doing is we're like hey pip go download all these packages for me and all their dependencies and then we'll search all the (laughs) files and we'll try to figure out what what you need and that's actually how it worked uh and it worked well but it was downloading all the files and uh having to hash them like and then it was using those files to calculate the hashes and it was just very very slow so now i'm just i just hit an api and i'm like Resolve the dependencies, and there's a verbose mode now, so you can do lock. The verbose mode's cool. Did you see how many rounds it does? It does like six rounds of. De- yeah, it's really cool. That's so. Pip Tools has a very nice dependency resolver. Pip will get a dependency resolver. Apparently, there's a Google Summer of Code student working on this right now. Um, so I'm looking forward to that because it needs one badly. Um, mm. But Pip Tools is working very well, so and it's also kind of like our main competitor. So I'm kind of happy that we're depending on it. I think that we're kind of sharing the burden there. And I'm I have commit bit on Pip Tools, so it's uh, yeah we're we're friends. The two projects. That's uh, it's awesome that they were able to provide the dependency resolver because I know that was the hardest part about really doing the lock and everything with with pipenv was having to resolve all those dependencies by hand and yeah it took, how, i was like, gonna say it took like 10 minutes but it actually took like 10 hours to figure that out for some reason <laughs> uh but i did i got it all working so yeah but uh so now uh let's say i have a uh, pretty big project like 50 packages um how long did it used to take for the pipenv block and how long does it take now I'd say before it would take anywhere from two to five minutes. 
Okay, and now it'll take anywhere from two to five seconds. Wow, a little bit better. Just, just a little bit. Yeah, just a, just a tad speed increase there. Yeah, but it depends on where you are located. So currently, the problem is the fact that we are hitting the warehouse API for all of these, all this information, and uh, warehouse is really quick when you live in Virginia. Uh, but if you live, say, in Brno, Czech Republic, uh, it takes a little while to hit. Um, hit those APIs. So we're trying to reduce the number of API calls as much as possible. Um, Can we implement some type of caching of that stuff? uh, Well, I'm just trying to reduce the number... I already did. I reduced the number of um, calls uh, by an exponential factor, basically. Mm -hmm. Before, every single time something was added to the pip file, like if you were importing a requirements file it would actually recase the entire file. So it would go to, for each package in the pip file, it would go out to PyPy and PyPI and check this, to make sure it was capitalized properly. And it would do that for every line in the pip file every time it added a package. So it was a, I can't remember the uh, the big O notation for that, but it's uh, it's the bad one. You know, it's, it's like, it's not O-N, it's, uh, it's, it's something else. Um, I never, mm-hmm. so, um, so now it, it only does that once it just adds them all and then it recases it at the end. So we're, we're putting lots of optimizations in there to reduce the number of calls and it's, uh, it's getting better by the day. So it's, uh, in a, it's, it's, it like, it was, it's already, it was already a great tool, but it's getting to be like a fantastic tool now. So I'm really excited. Yeah, um, I've been using it pretty much for all of my Python projects, personal and any work-related ones, um, for, I don't know, probably, how old is the project, like a year old now? Mm, I guess seven or eight months. I've been using it since you told me about it, and, uh, you know, just recently we've had that uptick once we found out that it was going to be the, uh, the official uh, recommendation from uh, PIP and stuff. From the from the um, PyPA, yeah, from PyPA and uh, from just, Py, well, from Python.org, yeah, yeah. And so that, will that come like pre-installed with uh, future versions of Python? No, pip only pip will. Oh, only pip will. Okay. No, but the official packaging instructions on Python.org will say to use pipenv. Okay. Which is great. Yeah, that's awesome. It's really exciting to work on a tool that's going to help shape the Python community in the coming uh, time. Yeah. Um, like, it feels really good to be able to contribute in that way. I find it very interesting to work on a packaging tool because I'm used to, like, working on requests and stuff like that where it's just, like, instant adoption, you know, where everyone's just like, oh, this thing is great, I'm going to use it today. With, yeah. with packaging tools, people are like, this thing is great, I'm going to I'm gonna keep that in the back of my mind for six months. Yeah, I want to <laughs> see if it's, like, stable in six months or something, and... I want you know. well, they wait. People wait to hear someone else tell them to use it, and then they'll consider using it. They're like, they want to feel like they're missing out. It's based on FOMO. 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 Yeah, that's how packaging tools work. Yarn is popular because of FOMO. Because everyone's like, oh, I need, I need to be using Yarn. I'm missing out. You know. Yeah. And so that's 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 how it works. And that's how Pip got popular because it was, there was easy install and easy install worked fine ish. That's true, yeah. I mean it it's it, there was no easy uninstall, but there was you could install whatever you wanted, right? I mean, yeah, when I started using <laughs> Python like 10 what, 10 or 11 years ago when we took that class together, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. We were still mostly doing like easy install stuff. Like pip really wasn't. I mean, there was pip, but it was. I don't know if pip existed then. Yeah, I. It, I think it was either like coming out or like just like one of those things. Like you said, like another package management system that we weren't using because the book was telling us to like, oh, easy install is the only is the way to go and stuff. And I started using pip because I was watching this great talk by C. Titus Brown on continuous integration and where he teaches everyone what continuous integration is. And at the beginning of the talk, he did a PSA and he was like, everybody stop using setup tools directly, use pip instead. And I was like, okay, that, that, that's all I needed to hear. I just needed to hear from someone authoritative. And yeah. So that's what, that's what I try to do. I mean, I try to be authoritative in other ways, like use Python three. And, uh, which is when, is like, when did you, re- you recently just came to that? Cause I remember on your, on Python guides for a while, it was like, Oh, use the one that fits your use case or, you know, and you kind of had a leaning towards Python two for a little while. Well, so Python guide has rec- has said to use three for new projects for the last year or so. Um, but it got very aggressive in the last couple weeks uh I mean, it, it, python 2 dies in like a year or something right 31 months yes 31 months two years a little over two years so now if you go to the request homepage or if you go to pythonguide.org there is uh, a giant banner at the top that says if we use python 3 there's 31 months left and there's a giant yellow note on the homepage that says python 3 is strongly recommended over python 2 and it, mm-hmm. it and then it says that you're a person of excellent taste if you use Python three. <laughs> so, so it's uh, I'm trying to really like evangelize the use of Python three. And I just found yeah. out today that Python three has tab completion built into it, which is fantastic. Oh, um, really? Yeah. If you import OS and do OS dot tab, it just shows you all the things that are in it, and uh, it's built right into the REPL in Python three. And I was like, Oh, really? So you don't have to like use IPython or anything like that for that. No, you don't have to use IPython anymore. It's built right in. It's built in on uh, two cool. as well. You just have to turn it on. There's like two. It's a two liner to turn it on. Wait, is it is it enabled right now, or is it in like three seven? No, it's in three six. Oh shit! Really? But this. but it doesn't work in Bitbend right now. We're working on fixing it. I'm just running my system Python right now. Yeah, running on system Python. Uh, oh god, I have it linked because I have your fish functions in there. So I'm gonna type Python. It didn't speed IPython. Oh, I turned that off. That's that's a bunch of bullshit. Thanks, Ken. Thanks. It was actually working rather well, except for the fact it interferes with uh, it interferes with sh- things. Yeah, I, with I, like pipenv and stuff like that when I was trying to resolve it. Sometimes I use that function for like three days and then I turned it off. I just tried that out. It does indeed. It, it, I wish it was more like the IPython one, but it still is. It, it, it's there and it works. It's there and it works. That is quite awesome. Yes, it's quite cool. I thought I thought that was a nice touch. I tweeted I'm about so, it today, I'm, and I was I oh, thought really? I thought I was the only person who didn't know about it, but it turns out no one knew about it. So yeah, no one. I wouldn't. I, I'm so used to just doing dir and then os and then looking at the output of that. It turns out um, using Python three on a daily basis it gives you like a lot of nice things. However, <laughs> I found one big annoyance with using three daily and that is i write mostly code that works on two and three and mm-hmm. um i will put in exception handling into my applications that are only available on three 
Uh, yes. That, uh, you did that in the setup.py file for pipenv. I do it everything because it's just like, what's the exception? Okay, put it in there. That's what I always do. Yeah. But on two, that works fine because the two ones are compatible with three. But yeah. it doesn't work in three because they added new exceptions. So you have to go and right. find the base exception that works on both. And uh, yeah. it's a little bit annoying. Uh, that's the only complaint I have about using three daily so far. Um, yeah. I've used F strings now. F strings are very nice. Um, have you? Do you know what F strings are? Uh, I cannot say that I've used them. I've only heard you talk about them before. Are you aware of what they are? Uh, are they kind of like the similar in C or whatever? I don't know. So I don't know either. You know how you can have a Unicode string? You put a U in the front. Yeah. Okay. You put an F in the front of a string. Okay. And that means that it's going to be like automatically formatted, basically. Oh, really? So locals will get passed into that automatically. So I can do, in in brackets, I can put a variable name, and it will just, at runtime, stick it in there automatically. I don't have to do dot .format. Oh, really? Or you could call a method. Or you could do 2 plus 2, and it, and it does all that stuff. So you could do F... Uh, single quote two plus two, single quote, and it would no, resolve you, to four. You have to put it in in the format brackets. Oh, okay. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, yeah. So wait, does it uh, if you say it imports the locale or the local variable scope? It, it like it's as if you called format with locals passed in automatically. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't know about that one. No. Yeah. Yeah, it's very fancy. It's in 3.6. 3.6 uh, only? 3.6 only, yeah. Okay. So if I'm writing a new web service, I use it now, for example. Like on Coinbit, yeah. I'm using it. And it's uh, it's pretty nifty. So that's that's cool. That's awesome. I did not know about that feature. Yeah, if you ever see an F-string, that's what it is. It's like, it's very, it's, it feels weird at first. But then once you get used to it, it's kind of nice. Yeah, you still have to use dot format sometimes, like it because you you need to delay the formatting until later. Because yeah. these are instant, like like when the interpreter gets to that string, it's going to stick them in there at that moment. So, uh, okay, for, dot format isn't deprecated or anything like that. You, mm-hmm. they, they they're both valid for different reasons. And some people are a little upset about f strings because there should be one obvious way to do it, and now we have like three or four different ways to format strings in Python. Yeah, what are we, JavaScript? But, well, JavaScript only has floats. So they they don't have integers or, or decimals or anything. So they have, I, they, I, they've I taken one obvious way to do it to a logical extreme. Yeah, except for the fact that there's like a billion libraries to do anything. Like, oh, you want to do this and. JavaScript, there's like four different libraries and standards that you can use. Well, it's because they um, have no standard library. Like, oh, here's Ember. Oh, here's uh, Angular. Here's, uh, you know, just oh, standard ES6. You know, if you look at NPM and the most popular packages, one of them is like makedir underscore p. Yeah. Like, that's that's, like, that's a thing. Because it's I like, don't... oh, I need to make a directory. Got to NPM install it. That's how. Yeah. That's how that works. I. I. So my wife has a blog that I set up for using Ghost, which is like the new, simple minimal hotness for running a blog. 
and it's a it's an npm thing. It's a it's a node package. So I installed it on a DigitalOcean box that had five twelve megs of RAM, and I do like yarn install, right? And yeah. It ran out of memory, resolving the dependencies. Yeah, it's, the npm can get a little ridiculous like that. Um, there were so many dependencies on this simple blog that the machine ran out of RAM to process the dependencies. So I had to upgrade her to like the gig box or whatever, or maybe it was from two fifty six to five twelve. I yeah. had to upgrade something. Something memory wise, so that she, so that I could run yarn install. It was quite impressive because it has like eight. It, it, I'm ballparking, but it has probably 300 dependencies. This simple, that's, simple blog. That's just just so ridiculous. It, I, and it, it's it. There's it. It reminds me of like PHP, which has like like what like five like a thousand built-in functions. I think it's four thousand. Yeah, where Python has, like, what, 57 built-in functions or something like that? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh... You're right. I forgot about that about PHP. Yeah, because PHP... And also, people use PHP like it's not... It's a templating language. It's like fucking Jinja or something like that. Hey, PHP is a great language. You don't want to... You don't want to ostracize any PHP developers. Oh, uh, that's true. I just, I took a, cl- I took a class doing PHP and MySQL, and I was, I hated that class. It was so bad. PHP has objects now. You can do object-oriented PHP. Okay. And they have a great dependency manager called Composer, which is where I got most of my inspiration for pipm from. Ah, okay. I understand. That's cool. That's cool. But there's like good PHP and there's bad PHP. You gotta you gotta be able to do the litmus test to. to I, know which I was is which. using the like 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 uh, when Web well, 2.0 was like the I think hot thing. Every Python developer ever did bad PHP at some point. Yeah, I think that's where you start. That's what drives <laughs> you to Python. You know, you're like, oh, there has to be a better way. Um, now npm. If you look for the uh, pat uh, the is package, my um, favorite function in PHP is if you do backticks anywhere, it'll just shell out to the system automatically. Yeah, uh huh. I love that. Yep. I think it's great because then you yeah, can, you know, you can just run Fortune or something and put it in your website, which is two backticks. I'm like, this yeah. is so hard to do in Python compared to. Yeah, you got to import OS and like do execute a sub processing. Well, now with Delegator, it's super easy. Yeah, but well, Delegator isn't very popular. Well, well, now's the time to to give it some. I'm gonna give it a boost. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know. All right. Well, if, if anyone it. has ever felt the pain of using subprocess or the pain of using pexpect, I have combined the tool into one tool called Delegator, which allows you to use the same API to access both systems. So it allows you to call a subprocess, have it block or not, and if it's not blocking, you can say when there's a password, send the password over or something like that. So we're using it in pipm and it's working out pretty well. So you should uh, tie in background to I, that. That's why I wrote background. It's in pipm. No, I know not for pipm, but for the other one for like blocking operations and stuff, or non-blocking operations. No, nah, that's not appropriate. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, background is another library I wrote this week, which is um, yes it gives you a decorator which will wrap a function and when you call that function it'll automatically spawn off a thread for you and run it in the background with subprocess or concurrent.futures so 
all you have to do is import background, background, at background.task over anything. And then it'll just return. You can call something that takes 10 minutes or 10 seconds or whatever. And it'll just return immediately. And uh, you can add a callback if you want. Uh, So I'm using it in pipenv to lazily check to see if there's an update uh, available. Yeah. It it spawns off a thread and then it checks and does that logic in the background of the main process. So that's what I'm using it for. Yeah. It's a cool, nifty little utility. Um, That was a bitch to port to Windows on 2.7 or just Python 2.7 in general when I vendorized that for pipenv. The dependencies... Yeah, because the, concur- the the version for Python 2 is so much different than the one for Python 3. Because um, it's built into Python 3, 4, and up. Um, Concur- but that version... You're, you're speaking of concurrency.futures. Yes, concurrency. Yeah, futures, yeah. Or futures, and, futures.concurrency? Yeah, one of the two. Um, yeah, so I just have to get like the 271 and rename a bunch of namespaces and vendorize it for 2.7 because well if you ever want to help out you should check out the tablet ba- uh, code base sometime because that's oh, dear lord that's all it is I back in the day I was like I'm going to make this thing work on Python 3 that was like long before that was cool yeah and I was using a lot of dependencies like Excel Reader and Excel Writer and they didn't have Python 3 support and I'm not I wasn't like a good person who was like oh, I'm going to, like, contribute back to the project and help them at 3 support. I'm like, no, I'm just going to write it. So I sat <laughs> down, and I just, like, ported the whole thing over to Python 3 of all of Excel Writer and all of Excel Reader. And, uh, God damn it, Ken. And then I just, like, have them both in the code base, and then it imports them differently if they're on different things, and it's a nightmare. And, <laughs> But Tablet is used by records to export things, and it supports pandas now. So you can you can uh, that's true, which is really neat. So you can take you can use records to run a SQL query, and then you can get a data frame out of it with one line of code, which is really nice. Uh, so I don't know how hard that is to do with pandas directly, but I assume it's more than one line of code. Anyway, so that's what yep. I've been up to. That's what you've been up to. Yep, I think this is a good time to end the show. Sure. It's about an hour and ten minutes in or so. Let me check Twitter to make sure if anyone has any questions. What security measures are in place for Aaron's Internet of Things connected home? Huh. That's an interesting question. What security is in place? For your Internet of Things connected home. Uh, well, a lot of the... I so... I'm very perplexed by how this person knows this about you. Yeah, actually, um... They must have really, really dug into you. Apparently. Um, I'm not that popular online. I, I don't have a big Twitter presence. Uh, you know, I got some Instagram oh, and stuff going on. it's in on. your Twitter bio. It says, I'm, an, I'm also an IoT-connected home enthusiast. Oh, yes. Well, that is also true. I forgot I put that in my bio. Um, so, first and foremost, uh, obviously, is I have, um... One, uh, you know, a lot of uh, network security in place. I'm running custom firmware on my router. Um, not DDWRT, but another one. Tomato? No, not tomato. Um, God, what's it called? Uh, well, let me just log in real quick here. Let's see. 
Um, but basically, I'm running, uh, you know, uh, a custom firewall on there that you know blocks connections. Um, it also does, you know, stuff like it will prevent you from getting DDoSed or stuff like that. Um, it's uh, just called oh LEDE reboot, um, uh, which uses uh, Lua for a uh, front end. Oh, uh, I love system. Lua. Lua is like my new favorite language. Yeah, Lua is pretty uh, fun. Um, we uh, tables. Tables are weird. I don't understand them because their indexing starts at one instead of zero. Yeah, that's an annoying part of that. I don't like one bait. It's like fucking but, XSLT. But, but the zero index does return something. I just don't know what it is. I'm trying to figure that out. And there's no good doc- Is it like metadata about the object or something? I don't know. I, I haven't gotten that far. I, I'm just writing games, so it's kind of hard to get debugging it's information. A lot of a lot of Steam games that have like a modding API or like, a, like a Binding of Isaac, the iPlay. Um, that uh, I hate that game. I know you hate that game because you think it's too hard. I own it on like three platforms. Uh, yes, and it is. I cannot survive more than five minutes. I can survive more than five minutes. It's very hard, but the point is, is that they have a modding API and it's all done in Lua. So, like, you can write new characters, levels, uh, new power ups, and things like that, and it's all done in Lua. And a lot of Steam games have. That See, I like relaxing um, games that are like, even if they're really intense, I can still like relax into them. Blind, the Binding of Isaac, Blinding of Isaac, is not a relaxing game. It's like there's no, I can't cap casually play it. It's not a casual game. You have no, to you, like, you gotta be alert. Like you gotta like really like. But I play like um, Super Meat Boy, and like that game requires a lot of attention. But it's, it's I can still play it very casually. Because I can, I'm yeah. so good at those type of games. I can just sit back and do like whatever. Yeah, it, I mean, but you can't do uh, that with the bl- the bi- blinding of Isaac. It's like binding. It's not blinding. Is it? But he's like crying. I thought he was blind. Binding. No, you shoot you shoot tears out of your eyes because you're so sad and stuff. But okay. your mom is trying to kill you because of God and stuff. So I no. can't, I can't believe Nintendo approved that on their platform. Yeah, it's pretty surprising, actually. They denied it at first, but that, I have it on the Switch, I have it on the 3DS, and I think I have it on the computer. Yeah. No, I don't have it on the computer. I only have it on two platforms. But I, I have it on. I just have it on Steam. I don't. I don't like that game. I don't know why it's so popular. I don't get it. Oh, let's let's go back to the the question from Twitter user with I don't know because I don't remember Ryan Kastner. Ryan Kastner. Um, so first and foremost, uh, I am running a custom firmware on my router. Um, I did buy a pretty expensive router. It, it's one of the higher-end home market routers from Linksys. Um, has uh, you know all the uh, it's do, like yours. Do you have the Linksys version of mine? Essentially, yeah. It was like two, three hundred dollars or something when I bought it, um, and you know has very nice antennas towards AC. I think yours uh, is the you same know. as mine, except it only has one five gigahertz antenna instead of two. Um, I have t- well, maybe uh, sorry, I'm not sure. Not antenna radio. I have, um, I have two five gigahertz radios. Oh yeah, and I only have one five gigahertz radio. So and yeah, but um, so on there I'm running you know uh, a lot of custom rules for firewall stuff. Um, since I installed the uh the custom firmware, I have access to a lot of uh, Unix tools. Um, you know like 
DNS mask for basic firewall stuff, and there's also uh, you know uh, there, IP tables and stuff that I can set. Busybox. Um, it does run Busybox for some of its uh, functions um, underneath, um, but it's actually using the open source uh, OpenWRT uh, um, as its base. Okay. Um, so you know I have basically all the OpenWRT packages um, available to me. Um, and so one, there's that and uh, with IP tables set, it's, you know, a pretty hard, like, you know, I, I'll just completely block a connection to, you know, certain, uh, IP ranges and stuff. And generally all my IOT devices have a certain IP range. So I can really in my router just say, basically, if there is an incoming connection, cause some of them are DMZ, um, I can just still block it right there. Um, and then the other thing is I don't have a lot of, uh, IOT stuff that, uh, you know, I've bought, like, you know, I don't have like an IOT fridge or, you know, oven or whatever. Um, most of the things I'm building with Arduinos or, um, you know, uh, Raspberry Pis and stuff. And some of my projects aren't even connected to the internet. They're just local. So like, for example, I have, uh, a sensor thing, uh, setups that can alert me of something down in the basement if I want, but it's not connected to the internet. There's a 900 megahertz radio network operating that these devices are communicating on. Um, and so, and it's, you know, there is a little bit of security in place to, you know, send encrypted streams, but a lot of it's just, you know, from Arduino to Arduino. Um, and that's really, uh, uh, that's really it. I have um, so. uh, hue bulbs. All the all the bulbs in my house are hue bulbs, mm-hmm. uh, and those can connect to a hub, which connects to my local network. Yes, um, and then I connect that to Siri uh, with HomeKit, and then HomeKit is connected to the internet, but I think it's pretty secure. Uh, yeah, and what what's going to happen? Someone's going to turn off my lights. I mean, I'm not really that worried about it. I mean, there are other, you know, things like if you have uh, secure locks and stuff like that, like I locks have, that are on the... I see, that's the thing. I do have, um, I have a, a smart um, deadbolt on my house mm-hmm. uh, where I type in the key combination and it unlocks the house and then disarms the security system automatically, yeah. but it's on its own network called Z-Wave. Yeah, so Z the so the like the protocol that um, I don't have a Z Wave hub, so the Z Wave hub is not connected in any way, shape, or form to my internet. The Philips um, is a Zigbee hub. The Philips U lights they use the Zigbee protocol. Okay. Um, so there's two protocols really that you want to use for home automation. There's Zigbee and there's also Z Wave. Um, Which home assistant? talks to if anyone wants to play with this stuff they want themselves yes um home assistant is an amazing amazing python project um that lets you write your own integrations for uh these systems and also uh just already has a lot of built-in plugins like you know it automatically detects all my chromecasts all my sonos the only uh, thing i think i could do with philips a home assistant is i could i could make a z-wave bridge with an arduino Mm-hmm. And then I could make it so when I arm my house, it turns off all the lights automatically. Uh, I mean, you can probably set up that automation in, in HomeKit. But, or, uh, uh, you know, whatever it's called, the Apple thing. But I don't want that to happen. So, guys, I want the lights to be on when I'm not home because it looks like I'm home. Yeah. And the, the, the lights cost a dollar a year to run. The They're not expensive, yeah. So, like, I'm not worried about the lights 
Tonroff. So that's the only thing I have a use for him. I don't know why everyone's so excited about HomeKit. Because um, I have no use case for it. And I have, Wait, you're talking about Home Assistant or HomeKit? Or home, home Assistant and HomeKit. I, I, a HomeKit is really cool. I like so that I can tell I like Siri about... to turn off. I can dim my lights or change them any color I want. So what I use HomeKit or I use Home Assistant mainly for is that I'm running the Generation 1 uh, Hue bridge. Uh, oh, okay. So the Philips bridge. So it doesn't have support for HomeKit. Really? But, uh, yeah, no, it does not. And you have to upgrade to the version 2 of the of the bridge. And the Philips Hue bridge acts as a uh, Zigbee bridge. Yeah. Um, for any Zigbee devices, that's like, I also have a, a Hue switch that, like, so the people who don't have the app on their phone can, like, you know, just tap switch and stuff. And uh, Anyways, um, so... Um, I use Home I have, Assistant. I have There's motion a, sensors set up, so when I walk in a room, it just lights the room up automatically. Ah, I'm not that fancy. Which is the... I have that in the bathroom. It's great. I walk ah, in the bathroom and it lights up. I love that's it. That's nice. I, I do like that. I wish I had... I, I mean, I can set that up. I don't want to spend the money on I, that right now. I have one in my office, too, and it it's annoying because I, uh, I, I disabled it because it... Um, I sit still at my computer for so long. It yeah, that I, and it would just that it turns off. So I'm going to move it to the laundry room. So that way we have light in the laundry room at night, which would be nice. Yeah, it's one of my yeah. projects I got to do. Um, yeah, it's, but I think no. the bridge ha- is. I think that the app configures the bridge to contain the logic for the motion sensors and stuff. So I think the the bridge is more than just a bridge i think it no the bridge is a whole little server it it has yeah. a uh, rest api that you can use and so oh, really? there is a yeah the philips u bridge has a rest api like you have to get a key and authenticate that's why you have to push the button before you yeah like add a new app and stuff yeah but you essentially register your app with the hue bridge and then you can access all the endpoints for light status you know you can get and set color you can get and set brightness you can uh, create groups and my, that's all. My favorite all that stuff feature is... is that Siri knows every color name ever. Like my front light bulb yeah, is a color it's... one. I can say make the color make it salmon. Seafoam blue. Seafoam blue. Yeah, and, and I don't know what. There's no like official list of all these color names I can find. But like you just yeah. come up with random color names and she nails it. She nails it every time. It is not Philips who's doing this. It's Apple. No, it is Apple. Because Someone I, at Apple is like, their job is to like coordinate color names to like yes. perfect RGB colors. It's amazing. It's, it is quite amazing. <laughs> um, when I, so I connect HomeKit to a HomeBridge. So uh, someone has written a, essentially a fake bridge device yeah. that's HomeKit compatible in Node. Um and so I run that with a plugin that I install that basically links it to all of the devices in uh, we, we Home Assistant. Gonna, so, me and you were going to write something that translated that into Python, but then they but did it's that. it's super complicated. Didn't they and do also that for they, you or something? Well, I mean, yeah, that's basically like what the Node plugin does. The Node plugin talks to Home Assistant. Because Home Assistant also offers an API that lets you control your devices. Oh, okay. That's the other thing is that if you want to control just general lights without dealing with vendor-specific stuff, um, you know, like, if, like, for Philips Hue, I'd have to download the Philips Hue library to control them. And if I had some Z-Wave lights, um, like, from, 
I don't know, uh, one of the Z-Wave companies that does that stuff, um, I would have to use two separate APIs. But HomeKit or Home Assistant allows you to talk to just lights in general as one API. Um, so that's it's a real, that's in that sense it's a really cool Python project. And so since it offers that kind of REST API for lights, um, you know, in HomeKit on my phone, it doesn't know that they're Philips Hue lights, but it can do most of the same stuff that you can do with you know talking directly to the the V2 bridge. Um, so that's the that's the really big benefit about Home Assistant is that it offers a unified API for just like all locks or all lights, uh, regardless yeah. of manufacturer and, and, and whatnot. So. But you have to have hubs for those, or bridges for those things. Yeah. And that's so, my problem is I don't have a Z-Wave bridge. And if I did, it would be a huge security vulnerability in my house. Yeah, I mean, so there, you know, most of the IoT stuff that I have is is protected in that way. Like the Philips Hue lights, no one can control my lights. Now it would be nice if it knew my uh, geolocation of my phone and then it armed the house automatically when I leave because I forgot. That'd you should be, cool. be able to set that up in HomeKit. But I know if I did that, the police would show up all the time accidentally because like my wife is still home and I'm not or something. Yeah, like that. I mean, just, it's just not worth messing with to me. Yeah, it's more complicated right now. Um, I've had the police come once so far uh, because the cat, I guess, set off the motion sensor in my living room. Uh, it was... Ooh. Uh, I don't know. It, the, the, that alarm tripped. It must have been the cat. And it, I, yeah. have, I have like a cat-resistant motion detector, but if he moves too quickly, it, it doesn't... <laughs> it doesn't appear <laughs> like that. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm always a little nervous to lock the house when I leave because... Because the cops might show up, and I, then I told them if if it if if it gets tripped, do can I call a number and like tell you that it's not like a false alarm? And they're like, no, nope, if it goes off, we have to show up. So really, you could yeah. usually like if you accidentally trip it, call like the company and say, hey, yeah, it was me, I tripped it, and then they ask you for like a password, security code thing. And I do get a call and I have to verify, but it, I admit, I don't accept calls from numbers I don't recognize, so. That's, that will do it to you then. And so that's why they showed up, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, uh, in the end, security for IoT devices is that most of my IoT stuff isn't actually connected to my main network, um, and any radio communications that I do use are generally encrypted. Um, and, you know, it's easy to break that encryption and stuff, but again, I don't have anything too sensitive. My IoT stuff is on a, uh, not a different subnet, but a different IP range than the rest of my stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I, since I have the uh, routes and IP table stuff set up correctly, uh, you know, it's not really a problem. And plus my router's smart and sees that if there's a lot of unidentified traffic trying to access my IP, um, it will just kind of, like, block them and stuff and, you know, put in measures to stop those connections from happening, so... Um, cool. Yeah. Any uh, other uh, that questions? Was the, or that was like the that? only Twitter question, so... Whoa, okay, well... I think that wraps up our there show. There we go. Thank you for, yeah. uh, for joining us. And, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Where can people uh, learn more about you? Uh, you don't blog... Uh, no, I don't blog. Maybe I should start doing that. Um, I am on Twitter at Aaron X Ocon. Um, not super active, but I do read a lot of stuff. Like I'm, I'm very much involved in reading. That's where I get a lot of information from you're, about the tech world and you're stuff. You're a Twitter lurker. I'm a Twitter lurker. Yes. Um, 
but you know uh, also on GitHub you can find me um, Aaron uh, Exocon same uh, same title uh, and I'm you know you can find me on a lot of Ken's projects I've committed to a lot of them and like I said PipAmp is the one that right now we're we're really working on so that's awesome well thanks for yeah. joining and thanks for all your help I really appreciate it and yeah. uh, thank you for, for listening me. 